get you guys started into this new series that we're doing, which uh, if you haven't heard, we are starting a new series. It's five weeks called Serving Habits. And, and really, the whole thing is called Habits because we're going to be doing five weeks of serving and then five weeks of speaking habits. And so just know that the next like 10 weeks, we're going to be talking a lot on what type of habits and disciplines does God want to work into us. And, and my hope is that tonight we can kind of March 4th, so five, four Wednesdays away from now, um, we're going to be uh, doing a, a service field day project as our small groups, which means that we're not going to just talk about this and go talk about it more in our small groups for four weeks. You're going to go and live it. Go and do it. And your group's going to form that, and you're going to be creating that. Um, so, you know, like, you guys, habits are such a big thing because habits are, and discipline— What the crap? <laughs> um, you know, uh, I don't want the echo. That will throw me off. <laughs> uh, um, what was I talking about? Habits. Okay, good. Um, habits are the things that we end up building into our patterns of the day. And when you really think about it, we all know that we have a lot of bad habits. We all know that we have a lot of good habits. A lot of us have habits that become part of our routine, that they're just so part of our routine that you don't even realize it's a habit until somebody else notes it to you right? And, and there are different habits you, we do. Sometimes you do things as a community that's a habit. Like everybody that becomes part of this ministry, staff or student, it becomes a habit that at the end of a prayer when someone says amen, you suddenly hear people go, right? And you're like, oh, and we're not even in youth group. And, but the habit gets formed, right? Um, a lot of us have a morning routine that over the years, habits are formed in doing that. Now, one of the habits that I hate, that I remember watching five years, I have a habit of falling off the stage, um, is five years ago, I remember watching um, one of the guys I worked with, that he had the, one of the first iPhones, right? And I remember going to a, um, a conference with him, and watching that one of the habits he had when we woke up in the hotel, is he would lean over, get his phone off the thing, and what would he do? He would sit on the side of the bed, and for 10 minutes, just scroll right? And I was like, man, I hate that. Why, why would somebody wake up and that's the first thing they did? And then I got an iPhone. And I found that there was this pattern, this habit that we tended to do of we'd put the charger in our room, we'd put the phone on the nightstand right next to the bed, and when you got up in the morning, you would go over and you'd pick up your phone and now you're staring at it, deleting emails, scrolling through... And that became a habit, right, of my morning routine. Um, even our simple things like our ways of saying hello become a habit, right? And as you form a habit, you find that that's the way you say it over and over again until something dislodges you off of that and you want to change that habit maybe in how you say hello. I remember living in New Zealand and getting into this habit and this pattern of doing what everybody else did around me and going, g'day, right? And it wasn't no more, what's up, or hello. It was like, g'day, mate right? And I was like, yes, you know, it was New Zealand, right? And, but those habits that are formed, and then I didn't even realize I did it until I came home, and then everybody made fun of me for that habit. They're like, g'day, you're, you're stupid, right? And, and that's what happens, is these habits and these disciplines get formed. But you guys, the things we're talking about are actually habits of the heart. They're deeper rooted habits that don't just affect something you're doing outwardly, but these are aspects of your character, and your integrity. And what we're talking about tonight 
is really we're talking about where do habits fit in when you start talking about the nature and the purpose of the church and your role within it, right? Because that's one of the most important things. Why does ministry happen? Why should we serve? Why should it become a habit? Why should service and ministry become part of the regular definition and picture of a Christian? You guys do community service hours. We do service projects. You might go in Mexico or Uganda or Haiti or Romania. Some of you might get jobs working as a server, right? These are terms that are there, but why? Why do it? And it all starts, you guys, with our identity and what you believe is the purpose of the church and your role within it. And I want to I start by just ripping away the misconceptions that have to be said over and over and over again because people get caught in this. The purpose and the nature of the church is not simply that we are to be fed. That is the catchphrase that goes around our world right now, is that you go, I will go to a church because I get spiritually fed, because I'm well taught. That is not the sole nature and purpose of the church for people to be well, well taught. It's not just so that we go and get inspired. It's not just so that we go and get satisfied in our spiritual identity or position. The church exists so that new lifestyles are formed and new identities are formed. And so words like mission and ministry and service and faithfulness and truth-telling and hospitality and gratitude, they aren't suggestions of habits and disciplines that we should have. They are identity markers. They are things that say, I am part of God's people called out to be the church. And so I live up to those habits. I live up to those distinctives. I live up to those disciplines because they are things that show the mark of God and his spirit in my life. Let me, guys, let me read you guys a passage here real quick. This is the, the verse that's kind of going to be part of what's going to establish us for understanding this idea of service and mission. 2 Corinthians 5, four, um, 14 and 15. Now you have to understand, Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthian church. Paul, the guy that wrote this letter, spent two years forming this church, teaching them, getting them in place. He spent his first two letters rebuking them, telling them, you're screwing things up. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know how you're doing it. You don't understand the nature of the church and why service and ministry and mission is supposed to happen. Let's put your phones away, you guys. Paul's doing all this, and then he gets to his third letter, and he starts getting excited about what the gospel can do to change the people in that city. Now, you got to go th three letters, but you didn't know that. 2 Corinthians is actually the third letter Paul wrote, right? Even though we only have two that are recorded, it's actually the third letter. So Paul writes this, and right before we're going we're, we're gonna to read what we read, Paul has just been getting excited about the gospel and the way that it has changed his life, and he knows it's sending and changing the lives of the people he's writing to and he's preaching to. And so he ends up, he ends up kind of getting excited and he starts boasting about the ministry and the service God has given him the benefit to do. But he's not boasting. He's saying, calm me down because I'm getting excited about the opportunities I have. And then so you get to verse 14 and 15 and this is what he says. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so Paul launches into this, you guys, and he says, you're all dead because he died for all. And he's saying, this is our conviction. This is our final conclusion on the matter. He's saying, you know what, you guys, if there's one thing you have to remember about Jesus on the cross, it's that he died on behalf of and in the place of 
all human beings. He became the substitute, is how theology talks about it. He became the representative that said, I will go and be the one that dies so that that death will affect the lives of every person and how they live and the habits and the disciplines that they have. And the effect of this is gigantohumongous. All of sin, all of its twisted influence, all of its ruin is put to death. Our old self is dead. Amen? That is supposed to be the good news. That is supposed to be the thing that when people hear that, they go, I can have a new life. I don't have to live enslaved to what I have. And he's saying your old self is dead and it's buried. This is not what you are. This is not who you are. It's not what you're about. That has no further worth. And so when the power of the blood of Jesus flows over you, it changes all that. But look at verse 15. It says, and he died for all so that. Okay, what I just shared with you is the essence and the main part of the gospel. The fact that Jesus died so that all of us are put to death and we are now new creatures. And a lot of us, we stop there. And we go, I'm saved. I got my ticket to heaven. I got my thing to make me feel better. That's it. But now Paul and his whole, the whole other verse is simply trying to say that so that is now telling you how you live because of that salvation, that rescue that you have received. And he says, he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. He says, you don't live to your old dead self. I put in here in my notes, it's, it's, you don't live any longer to the ex you, right? If you've ever had an ex-girlfriend or an ex-husband or an ex-wife, right? You no longer live to that. That past, that old you is gone. His death was always meant to change you and redirect you. He's saying you don't live enslaved to it. You are free to a new life for him. A new life, not for you, a new life for him. Because he's the one that died and rose again. He now frames your identity. He now is your master. He now is the one who reigns. And that concept of a renewed life is only possible because of his death and resurrection. And so he says, you're going to have a death to self. You're no longer going to live for your identity, for your appearance, for your status, for your lifeless expectations, for your competencies, and all the things that you can do. Those are all ended in one sense of the word. Their existence is altered. In Romans six eleven, Paul actually says, you need to count your old ways of life as dead. And I remember the first time I ever kind of was doing a message on Romans 6, I remember getting that picture. How many of you guys ever saw that classic old 90s movie, Dumb and Dumber? Right? Handful of you? Okay. Dumb movie, right? I just rewatched it again recently, and I was like, this is dumb. I mean, it's quotable, but it's dumb. But do you guys remember that there's one point where um, um, the main character, you know, that Jim Carrey's playing, wants to get some more money for their road trip they're taking to Aspen, and so he sells some things in their house, right? And one of the things he sells is the Tweety Bird, right? That uh, their little um, their little bird to the blind kid, right? And the bird's dead because some bad people had like ripped his head off, right? So he duct tapes it back on and gives it to the little blind kid. So he tells the guy, "Oh, I made some money. What do you sell? Oh, a couple things, you know, the bird." You know, and he goes. To the blind kid, right? And he's so shocked. And then it shows the little blind kid, and he's sitting there holding this dead bird going, pretty bird, pretty bird. 
oh, you're not very talkative, pretty bird, right? And later in the movie, they kind of make reference to it because it's part of the dateline, right? Where somebody's going, look how corrupt these people are that they would sell like a dead bird with no head to a blind kid, right? That is exactly, though, what a lot of us do with our old self, is we hold on to it, and rather than admitting and recognizing that it's dead, we're blind, and we're sitting there going with our old self, going, pretty life, pretty life, you're so good. It's okay, you're still around. And it's supposed to be dead. God's saying, that is dead. It is no longer you. Now, what's hard about this, you guys, is most of us look at our experiences in our life, and we look at those experiences as the things that define who and what we are. And so your memories, your relationships, your pains, your sorrows, and even our sins have all been instrumental in shaping you as a person. Even up to the age you're at, you will say, this is who I am. This is what my story is because of all these things that have happened. And that's true. But they are now buried and deleted. And they don't define who you are now and who you will be. And so it leaves you to say, this is me, but it's not the real me. The real you is somebody that God is the center of their lifestyle. The real you is someone that has a Jesus-defined identity. You can live as a servant who belongs to and is responsible to, to one Lord and one master. And you live a new life for him and his purpose. Now, a lot of people, they would be much more happy to stop at 2 Corinthians 5.14 and go, dude, I'm saved. The old me is dead. I don't have to fulfill verse 15 and do the so that and now live a new life. That is the part that a lot of people never take the steps of progression in. This is part of what we were talking about in our dormant series. It's part of what we've talked about in this ministry and this church for years. A lot of people think something like this, and this comes from a, a theologian from England named N.T. Wright, and I love how he says it because he goes, some people think something like this. He says, well, if, it sounds like I have to give up so much to live as a follower of Jesus. And he says, let me tell you, just imagine you take the biggest table ever created in the world and you put everything on it that has value in your life. Like you made a list and you took every single thing that had any value to you and put it on the table. And he says, you, you have this and it has so much value. You have your schooling and it has so much value. You have your sports and it has so much value. And you have your job and your family and your house and your friends and your car and your experiences and vacations and your possessions, whatever, your bank account, your music, your time, whatever you have in your life. And he says, you can even put the abstracts on the table and you can say, honesty is part of me and uprightness is part of me. And there's things that I learned from people in my life and I'm going to put all those on the table and I'm going to take one of those little price guns and go right? And price everything on this table that has value. And he says, now when you become a Christian, a lot of people think that what you're going to have to do is take that entire table and dump it into a dump truck and all of it is gone. And he says, you don't realize how wrong you are. What's going to happen is as soon as you are in Christ, immediately God gives you his price gun. And he goes, now let's redo this again. Now everything you price is going to have a new value. Everything is going to be reevaluated. You won't give up everything. You'll reevaluate everything. And so your priorities shift. And one of the first things that you will reevaluate is your purpose in life and your part in the church. You'll realize that the goal and the aim for your life is interweaved with God's purpose. And you understand one thing, that God's determination has always been to bless those that he has created in his image and in his likeness. 
The purpose has never changed all throughout Scripture, and God continually realigns and reorients our course to bless all nations and all people, to be a part of his mission, to build habits of service and ministry in our life. Now, that automatically makes me have to go, but what makes ministry and service unique? Because I want to stop you guys for a second. Every once in a while, I like to get out of my Christian box and look at what we look like to the rest of the world. And when we talk and use terms like ministry and service and mission, we have to realize that what we live has to be distinctive according to that identity that Jesus has compelled us to. Because you have to understand, Muslims do ministry and service. Mormons do ministry and service. Communist leaders have done ministry and service in their nations. Greedy businessmen have done ministry and missions. Atheists do ministry and missions and service. So what in the world makes our service and our ministry any more unique or distinctive? It has to come from the, co the compelling work of knowing that our identity is now that we live into that call and that mission of God. Because as followers of Jesus Christ and members of the church, every single person that claims to know Jesus and be a part of his body is on a mission, a distinctive mission, a peculiar mission, a demonstration that God's kingdom is reigning, that his presence is, is here, and that he is determined to bless and restore and save all. I'm going to give you guys a statement. We're going to talk about just the first point, and then you're going to go talk about this in your small groups. But there's a guy named Warren Wearsby, and he basically defines something so easy and so well and understanding this idea of service and ministry. And he says this statement. He says, service and ministry happens when God's resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Let me say it again. God's resources, his stuff, his work, meets human needs. But it happens through loving channels, and its end goal is the glory of God. You guys, I want to get that burned into your mind. We're going to talk about that every week for the next five weeks, that statement about how God's mission and God's ministry happens. But tonight, I just want to start with that aspect of divine resources. What is the divine resources that God uses and that God works with? The first thing that you start by learning, you guys, is that service and ministry is not what you do for God. That is how so many people will approach it. I'm going to go do a service project. I'm going to go and be part of a ministry. I'm going to go on a missions trip. You have to realize that these are things that God is doing that he, he invites us to participate into. It happens because God stirs you to do it. And you guys have to understand that when it comes to divine resources, God alone understands the full scope of all the needs on this earth and all the needs in this room. He is the only person, I can't do this, that knows exactly what every single person, adult or student, in this room walked in here with. Whether it was frustration over a grade, whether it was frustration in a relationship, whether you're not feeling good, maybe you just found out that you have some major sickness. Maybe something else is going on in your life. Maybe you left tonight and you fought with your parents in the drive over here, and you came in, like, angry and frustrated. 
Maybe your family's going through something financial and you're, you're taking the burden of that. Maybe people are writing stuff on your Instagram and writing stuff that's, that's, that's just wearying you out. God is the only person that knows every single one of those things. And so he is the one that has the resources to meet every human need in this room. I can't do it. I don't have enough time or money or talent or schooling to do that. And that's why we have to realize, you guys, that the church is not about a pastor or a volunteer staff being the ministers and being the people that do the ministry and the service. It has always been all of God's people do it. And they all do it together. But you understand this fact that God is the manufacturer and we're just the distributors, right? God makes and has all the resources. We're just the people distributing them. One of the greatest pictures of this is in John chapter 6 and Jesus feeding the 5,000. It says you in John chapter 6, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Think about that. He gets all the disciples together and he starts going, well, all these people are here. How are we going to feed them? And it tells you he already knew. He already knew what resources he had, but he asks them anyways. And in their humanness, all the disciples start going through and trying to manufacture ways that they can take care of it. One of them goes, well, we would need this much money to feed this many people. And then another guy goes, this is all the food we have, right? And they're looking at just their human manufacturing capability. And the whole time Jesus is going, I already know what I'm going to do. You're just going to pass it out, guys. <laughs> like, like, stop talking. You're just passing it out. You need to understand that. These are my resources from the Father. You're just the ones that are distributing it. And when you learn that, you guys, you realize that when you go into ministry and service, it's not that you have to go in and conjure up the needs. It's not that you have to go in and become the managers or the messiahs. You become a spiritual funnel. That you're obedient to what God asks you to do. We need to know those divine resources personally, though. Because how are you going to be a funnel if you don't even know what is God's, right? And so one of the things that you guys are going to be doing in your small groups is trying to figure that out and determine that. What are God's divine resources? What things has he put into my life that are things that he has put there that could be used to serve other people? You know, for some of us, it's, it's actual objects or possessions or money. For some of us, it's experience. For some of us, it's talents. For some of us, it's training. For some of us, it's education. For some of us, it's time. God provides and uses all of those, but at the same time, we often try to take those into our own hands. We need to know the divine resources personally and not hold it in like reservoirs. And when you realize that, you guys, you realize that it gives you a freedom and a great joy, and you don't have to be afraid of the challenges or get frustrated in trying to make everything perfect in a service project or a mission or a ministry because you realize all I am is a funnel, and so I just need to keep listening to God. Let me give you one story, and then we'll send you out. I've learned this, you guys, firsthand so many times in my life, and yet I always have to go back and repeat these stories. When I worked doing Mexico missions, um, this is about eight, ten years ago, um, we used to work with a church called Iglesia Evangelica Bethel um, in Ensenada. Um, the pastors, um, the Elena de Albas, they were awesome couple, um, got to know them so well, um, and they taught me this idea of depending on God's resources. Well, one year while we were there, this church would provide food to the community. Every Saturday, they would, they would do a breakfast and feed everybody in their community. Well, the week we were there, the refrigerator breaks, right? And they had a pretty good, hefty refrigerator that could be fixed, and, uh, but this one had died, died, right? Like there was no, 
And so they're like, what are we going to do? And us, in our humanness, go, look at God's providence. You have 30 Americans here with all this money. We will buy you a refrigerator, right? And we're looking at it going, this is perfect. God has given us funds. We have all this stuff. Let us buy you this refrigerator because we are obviously God's solution. And the pastor goes, no. And I go, loco, right? Like, like you're crazy, right? Because come on, obviously we're here and we have the money and we want to. God brought us here this week. He made the refrigerator die this week, right? Yeah, God makes refrigerators die. <laughs> right, God just kicks it and it dies, right? So, so this happens and he goes, no. And I'm like, and he goes, let's pray about it. And I'm like, okay, that's a good Christian pastor thing to do, right? So, so we're going to pray about this refrigerator. And I'm going, that's no problem. We'll pray. And then God will like convict us even more about giving the money, right? So we pray for a refrigerator to be provided. So we go back to the base camp for Mexico Outreach, which in Ensenada is about 35 minutes away from where we were. So we drive up there. And, and, the, and they had texting capability back then. And, uh, and we're at the chapel. And the pastor texts me. And he goes, you need to come to the church tonight. And I'm going, you're not supposed to drive late in Mexico by yourself, you know. <laughs> so I take one of my staff with me, and I go, because he texts me twice, and you should come. You need to come out. And he just had this little smiley face. So we get there, and we walk up, and they, on the, they have like a basement level where the kitchen was, and there's this brand new refrigerator sitting outside of that, that kitchen. Now, it wasn't one of those like, <laughs> it wasn't that. But he goes, an hour after you guys left, the Desarrollo, which was part of the, the government um, community service thing that was doing, was driving around Ensenada with 80 refrigerators that they were trying to distribute out to people and churches in need. And they drove up to the church and said, oh, you're a church. Do you guys ever use your refrigerators to help all the people in the community? And they said, yes, and our refrigerator just died. And they go, cool, this is the program that the government is giving out these refrigerators. Here's a brand new refrigerator. We'll put it in for you. And it was one of those stories, you guys, that we came in and I went, it is God's resources. And how often do I jump the gun and go, I'm going to solve this. I'm going to fix this because I can. And it taught me that whole element, you guys, that when, it's, when you start doing service ministry, you have to start with the reality that these are God's resources that are used. And one of the things you're going to see that's going to come up as another statement we're going to repeat over and over again in this series is that service and ministry is one of the ways you grow together as people. So you're going to learn this statement. I want you to get burned in your mind. Those who serve together grow together. You can sit in a room and listen to a message and watch worship. You can come to church every Wednesday and every Sunday, and you can still not get it. But when you serve together with people, a whole other level of growth starts happening. And that's why you guys going to the service project four weeks from now and then creating some of your own and doing more, because it's not that you have to just do it on a Wednesday night. That's going to be the thing that's going to grow you not only closer to God, but closer in community. So let's go ahead and divide you guys up in the room, break you out into your small groups. Freshmen, this corner. Sophomores, that corner. Juniors, that corner. Seniors, this corner. Head out. Do not go get vending machine objects. Just go get, just go quick. We want you guys to get to your classrooms. You can get it afterwards. <laughs>